All right. Well, as we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount, remember that after his introductory statements called the Beatitudes, followed by some words about our mission um, as salt and light in the world, Jesus has now undertaken to expound upon six of the most important Old Testament laws. Two weeks ago, we discussed the first of those laws, and today we'll discuss the second. Also remember that Jesus has two purposes in this section of his sermon. His primary purpose is to show that no person can keep God's law well enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not possible. Can't get there that way. Remember, it begins in verse 20 by stating that even the Pharisees and teachers of the law will not enter heaven by keeping the law. Because even they will fail to meet God's standard. On the other hand, Jesus also said that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. So Jesus is not saying that since the law is impossible for us to keep perfectly, we should ignore it. In fact, part three of Christ's great commission is to teach his future followers, that's us, to obey his commands. So the secondary purpose of this section of the Sermon on the Mount is to explain the law of God in such a way as to teach us what God expects from those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. In other words, followers of Jesus are to take these words to heart and learn to obey these commands through the power that is now within us as forgiven and spirit-filled believers. We need to stop making excuses and start obeying Jesus. The first law Jesus addressed was the prohibition of murder, but Jesus explained that at its core, this law was always about hatred, not just about murder. We talked about that last week. The second law, which we'll cover today, is about faithfulness in marriage. And Jesus explains that faithfulness should have always included the eyes and the heart, not just the body. Let's read our text. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus continues his sermon. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, today, we will only get through verse 30. But this all goes together around the concept of faithfulness. So consider this message today to be part one of a two-part sermon about faithfulness. Let me start with the hardest part of this passage, the painfully harsh statement in verses 29 and 30. After equating lust with adultery, Jesus says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, first understand that nobody thought Jesus meant for them to literally poke out their eyes or cut off their hands so as to avoid hell. We avoid hell by grace through faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, not by mutilating ourselves. However, make no mistake, Jesus absolutely wants us to be motivated by his words as those who desire to follow him. One of his points is that when it comes to marital unfaithfulness, the eyes and the hands can get us into a lot of trouble. Jesus wanted his learners to understand that avoiding marital unfaithfulness with the eyes or the hands 
might require extreme measures and that those extreme measures are warranted due to the severity of the potential consequences. We should be afraid of the consequences earned through unfaithfulness of the eyes and the hands. As a side note, Jesus clearly believed in a literal hell. We can wish it weren't true, but that is like wishing you wouldn't bleed if someone cut you. Based on what Jesus says here, we should be willing to do almost anything to avoid these types of sins because they will destroy us along with our families if we let them. Not only that, but the reference to hell also means that this type of unfaithfulness is a direct affront to a holy God. In other words, Jesus is saying that our lust is a blatant sin. And sin always includes spiritual consequences as well as physical. You cannot be right with God while committing unfaithfulness with your eyes or with your hands. Now, I'm not going to use the word from this pulpit. But personally, I find it very hard to believe that Jesus did not have a certain something in mind when he said what he said in verse 30 about the right hand. We can see clearly that Jesus is talking about lust or looking at other women with desire. And so the poking out the eyes part requires no explanation. But right there with it, Jesus mentions the right hand. Personally, I think it's very obvious what Jesus is getting at. And why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Because what you are doing with your eyes and your hand is unfaithfulness. God made sex to be shared between a man and his wife. Sex is not intended to be a selfish, self-centered, self-gratifying thing. I'll add that what you think is going to help in the end only makes matters worse. Now, by the way, refusing to be there for each other physically in marriage is equally as wrong. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on that. We are to give our bodies to each other in marriage. That's exactly what the Bible says. When we are there for each other in this way, that helps us avoid sins of the eyes and the hand. But regardless, no sin is ever excused for any reason. I said it was not going to be subtle. But short of using the word, I am talking about what you think I am talking about. So I'm going to go on record right now to say that unfaithfulness of the eyes or of the hand, which generally go together, constitutes sexual immorality, which hurts or can destroy your marriage. Why? Because ultimately these things are a poor substitute for the real thing, as is the case with all sin. Sins of the eyes and the hand are acts of unfaithfulness against your spouse because they compete for space within your heart, space that you vowed to reserve for the one you married. All right, take a deep breath. Now I will too because uh, that was kind of the hardest part to talk about, and it's over. Now there's a deeper issue summed up in everything Jesus says in this passage, and it's even bigger than marriage. Although we'll mainly apply these verses to marriage since that's what Jesus did. The bigger sin problem he's addressing can be summed up with the word unfaithfulness. In fact, we're going to refer to unfaithfulness as a disease. This is a disease that can absolutely rob you of a great marriage, even if you never take it to the extreme of what we would call adultery. In truth, unfaithfulness can rob you of any good relationship. Because every relationship requires commitment and loyalty. Unfaithfulness destroys relationships. Even more importantly, if we want to be followers of Jesus, his disciples, his representatives, his ambassadors, then we need to avoid unfaithfulness like the plague because we follow the most faithful being in the universe. We horribly misrepresent our faithful God when we are unfaithful as his people. Think of unfaithfulness as a disease. And Jesus addresses at least three different manifestations of this disease. We'll cover two of them today and talk, talk about them one at a time. But first, let's talk about a dude named Fred. Fred has a problem. He doesn't know he has a problem, but he does. 
Fred assumes he's just like every other man on the planet, and unfortunately he's almost right because most men suffer from the same condition, and some women do too. But just because almost everybody seems to have this disease doesn't mean there is no cure available. Fred is a Christian, so he doesn't openly or unapologetically look at pornography. In fact, we'll just think of Fred as one of the relative few who never does that. Go Fred. But the problem is that while Freddie is uh, patting himself on the back for being one of the 30% who doesn't look at porn, he still often does exactly what Jesus called adultery. He doesn't change the channel when the Victoria's Secret commercial comes on, when, he, when the love scene in the movie starts heating up. If nobody else around, he might even just rewind and watch it again. Tells himself he's only admiring some beautiful women. Hey, at least it isn't porn, right? Probably sounds harmless to some of you, but this is only the beginning of stages of the disease. And what did Jesus say again? Oh yeah, looking lustfully is adultery. When Fred is in public without even realizing it, his eyes scan the horizon and he's hoping to spy what? You know what? I don't want to describe what he's looking for, but you know, and why is he looking? He's looking because the form of a woman is pleasing to the eyes of a man, okay? Most everyone knows this, men and women. The fact is that it feels good to look and keep on looking, but that doesn't make it okay. I hear meth feels good, heroin, that it will destroy your life. We don't just do what feels good if we are followers of Jesus, right? But the fact that it does feel good needs to be mentioned so that we can understand what is going on. Every man knows this is true, and most women know it too. Men like to look. Some women are offended by this, and others are happy to become the object of someone else's desire. Some are naive. At this point, I would encourage you to look up Anita Renfro's hilarious music video called Those Aren't Pants. It's very funny. Moving on, men and some women find pleasure in looking, and that's a fact that needs to be understood. Advertisers, advertisers live on this, right? So obvious. And listen, it is true that this is the way God made us. The fact that we uh, find sexual gratification through the eyes is not our fault. However, when we take that pleasure indiscriminately from someone other than the spouse God gave us, that is our fault. And as a man or woman allows himself or herself to do this, he or she contracts a certain strain of the disease of unfaithfulness. By the way, if you're single, this still applies. You are being unfaithful to your potential future spouse or else you're being unfaithful to Christ in terms of what he has commanded. So let's go back to Fred and let's diagnose his disease. We regret to inform him that he has the beginning stages of what we will call ocular unfaithfulitis. Yes, it all starts with the eyes. Now, ocular unfaithfulitis, as mentioned, can manifest itself in varying degrees, but typically when untreated, it gets worse and worse. The other word for ocular unfaithfulitis is lust. Jesus said to lust after a person other than your spouse is adulterous. It's like committing adultery with your eyes. That is what the Lord Jesus said, and that ought to sting most of us. He intended for this to sting. When you ogle another woman, whether in real life or on a screen, it is as if you committed adultery with her, not with her image, but with her. That, my friend, is one of the things that God's Son, Jesus, came down here to tell us. And you know what? You and I need to let that burn. And it will burn, unless your conscience is already seared. Assuming you still have a conscience, according to this declaration of Jesus, how many times did you commit adultery last week? Summer is here. Don't tell me you didn't notice, guys. We left up our game. Stay faithful. That's a fact. By the way, Jesus is the one who singled out men on this, not me. He knows. In her book, The Writing Life, Annie Dillard tells of an experiment that was done with butterflies. The experiment involved placing a male butterfly with a female butterfly of his own species in a contained environment. The researchers then placed 
a painted cardboard butterfly into that environment to see what would happen. Now, the cardboard butterfly was bigger and brighter than the living female, bigger and brighter than any authentic female butterfly could ever be. In the experiment, the male butterfly ignored the living female next to him and went to the painted cardboard butterfly over and over again. Dillard adds, nearby, the real living female opens and closes her wings in vain. Now, let me do something very important. Let me define lust. Because if you are a Bible person, meaning you believe the Bible and want to live by it, you already know that lust is wrong. So what do Bible people do to get around this? We redefine lust in a way that allows us to do what we want, even though inside we know better. So here's an irreducible, biblically irrefutable definition for lust, to receive extramarital sexual pleasure through the eyes. Some of you don't like the word extramarital there because it makes you think of an affair. Good. You shouldn't like it, but that's what lust is. It's extramarital. Now, is it possible to notice a beautiful woman and not lust? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it certainly is possible to notice beauty and not lust, but you know as well as I do that there's a very fine line between admiring beauty and looking with lust. Frankly, in today's culture, I think most men cross that line more often than not. And some of this depends on the clothing and behavior of others, if you want to know the truth. I mean, of course it does. We all know there has to be a line somewhere between sexual and non-sexual, right? I mean, somewhere short of nudity. There's going to be a point when it would be awfully difficult for anyone not to have a lustful thought. Isn't that obvious? And yet, if anyone ever tries to draw that line somewhere specific, we gasp. What nerve? Nobody should tell anyone else how to dress. Yeah, well, I'm not going to get specific, so you can relax on that. But you need to know that men are especially wired to take in sexual pleasure through the eyes, and that's a fact. I fully believe God made us this way on purpose. Women typically, typically are more aroused by other things that I'll probably never understand. But right now, we're dealing with what Jesus said. And he clearly was talking about lust of the eyes, and he's clearly talking to men. Jesus was talking to men when he said, if you look at another woman like that, it's adultery. So listen, it is biblical to note that God made men in particular this way. I also believe that God intends to give the vast majority of men a wife who would be the only one in whom we are to find such pleasure. Now again, if you're single, then I'm either talking about the woman God has for you in the future, or if you're one of those individuals whom God may have called to be devoted to Him, as Paul put it, only to Him, never married, single for life. Only God knows how He plans to help you through this area. But based on that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 about singleness, it would seem to me that if that's you, then perhaps you have a little less of a tendency to sin in this way. Or as Paul put it, you must not be one who burns with desire Otherwise, if you do, then you should probably work on getting married. Work towards that. Do everything you can, pray, and, 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 and seek, seek a wife. And that's precisely what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can check that out later. Don't have time to go there today. So here's what I want everybody to get. When God gave Eve to Adam, the Bible says they were naked and there was no shame. Genesis 2. Now, the Bible says they were both naked, but I think you'll agree it was much more important than she was. I mean, when Adam saw Eve, his literal response, according to Scripture, was, whoa, man. Seriously, keep in mind that the animals were naked, too. Adam was alone, remember? He was alone. He had the animals there before Eve was created, yet Adam didn't ever think about their nakedness. But when God presented him, remember, it was his, his need was the basis of the creation of Eve, if you look at it. God presented him with his unclothed, unclothed wife, and the Bible says what? It says he was drawn to her in such a way that the two became one flesh. Can you imagine how smoking hot Eve must have been? 
to Adam. I mean, really. And, and why do I say that? Why would she have looked so hot to him? Because he wasn't comparing her to anybody else. What does a beautiful woman look like? To, to Adam, it looked like Eve, whatever she looked like. There were no magazine covers. There were no younger girls, no skinnier girls, no more shapely girls, no other half-naked girls. You get the idea. There were no billboards, no commercials, no movies. For a long time, just the two of them until later had started having children. So Eve was literally the only woman in the world for Adam. She was all that. He loved what he saw. He wanted what he saw. There was no shame. There's no shame. No shame in it. Don't be embarrassed today. There was no shame. This is marriage. You know what God said at that point? He said, this is very good. I mean, Eve could have weighed in at 400 pounds. Adam wouldn't have known any better, okay? See what I'm saying? All Adam knew was that she was made for him by God. She was this, whoa, man. She was this definition of beauty, not some Hollywood airbrushed pinup. Guys, if you're married, listen. God has given you your Eve. He's brought her to you, and that means she is your definition of beauty. You don't compare her to other people. You compare other people to her. It's kind of like, well, that supermodel's kind of pretty, I guess, but she's a little too skinny for my taste. Only if, she, if only she had more freckles. Maybe, you know, I'd like her as well as my wife. If only she had that big wart on her nose like my wife, maybe, maybe I'd be attracted. You hear what I'm saying? I promise you, it's actually possible for this to happen as you truly learn to believe that God already brought you your Eve. But this can only happen when you stop lusting after others. Only then will she become your definition of beauty, the one God has given you, yes, to meet your needs, including the needs of your eyes. And why should you let worldly forces and changing culture define beauty for you? Stand up for yourself. Don't let a sex-crazed society control you. Think where it's all going. See how ludicrous it is. Young women are trending anorexic, getting injections and going under the knife just to try to, you know, make certain parts bigger or smaller or a different shape. All just to make the visual cut at this point. It's insane. There's no end to it. The goalposts are always changing. Why? Because there is never any lasting satisfaction in sin. At its core, lust is a lie. Men, we could, we, men, fathers, and other men, we could solve a lot of problems. If we would obey Jesus and learn to look exclusively to our wife for sexual pleasure, and I'm telling you that over time, no matter what she looks like to you now, if you are disciplined and faithful with your eyes for a while, you will start to think she is the hottest thing on the planet. I promise you it works. Why? Because she is the one God gave you. She's been presented to you as a gift from God. She's the one who God joined with you to be one flesh, remember? And what God has joined together, let no man separate. As Adam said, she's now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Yeah, she got the best part, make no mistake. God started with dirt when he made Adam. Did a lot better on the second try, starting with the rib. That's pretty obvious. I mean, men are really kind of ugly, mostly. Sorry, guys. But women are pretty. And I hope all of them have a man that makes them feel pretty, whether that's their dad before marriage or their husband and their dad after marriage. By the way, if you think you're going to hear the same gender-neutral garbage the world is spewing from up here, well, it doesn't take long to be disappointed with me, does it? Newsflash, God made men and women equal, but different. Amen. Men, don't let someone besides God define beauty for you. Ladies, don't do that to yourself. 
either. You shouldn't have to. By the way, one of the most attractive things to a husband is a wife who is confident about her looks. Fake it for a while if you don't really believe it. We're dumb. If you act like you're hot, we will gladly play along. Now back to Fred. He says, Fred says, oh, I'm just admiring beauty when I check out the curves of other women. I'm just looking at a great work of art. I'm only salivating over the menu. I have no intentions of ordering. So what's wrong with that? What did Jesus say? Now, do you know how to tell the difference, when, tell when you're crossing the line notice, from noticing beauty to actually lusting after another woman? Well, personally, I believe if you're getting pleasure from it, it's lust. You know, if you keep wanting to look back, it's, it's, bordering, it's at least bordering on lust. If, you, if you're looking with desire, it's, it's definitely lust. If you go back and think about it later, it was absolutely lust. You can try to justify this all day if you want, but if you're getting some kind of sexual kick out of looking, then it's lust. He who looks on a woman with sexual desire commits adultery in his heart. That's very literally what Jesus said. Listen, to lust is be unfaithful to your spouse. And again, women can do this too. You remember the Dr. Pepper commercial with a construction worker, right? I mean, it was several years ago, probably 20 years ago, but some of you remember it. So yeah, it's unfaithfulness either way. And if you struggle with this, you'll not have victory until you first admit that you are being unfaithful to the one you love, which is no laughing matter. Lust is unfaithfulness to your spouse or future spouse or to Jesus if you'll never be married. And make no mistake, this disease we're calling ocular unfaithfulness will eat at your marriage or future marriage like an infection. Get this straight. Your spouse is the only one in whom God wants you to find that sexual pleasure, visual or otherwise. And by the way, when you do things God's way, you will find that His way is so much better. But first, you have to confront the lie that it's okay to lust. No, my friend, you have a disease. Sometimes, sadly, I have it too. We need treatment. Now, as, I, as is probably obvious, the primary symptom of ocular unfaithfulness could be described as follows. The patient has a tendency to look around for visual sexual stimuli. Listen, if you have the symptom, you have the disease. Be honest with yourself. And here's the prognosis. Left unchecked, this condition will lead to a loss of attraction level and sexual fulfillment from current spouse. The patient is likely to experience a downward spiral of sexual immorality, including addiction to pornography and potentially worse unless treatment is successful. Now, more importantly, is there any hope for those who have already contracted this dreaded disease? Yes, there is. Let's talk about our treatment options. You, as a patient, have a choice. We can either remove your eyes... Anyone? No. Yeah, eye removal or physical therapy is what we'll call it. Your choice. Assuming you would choose physical therapy, there are three facets to your treatment. But before I share these three tools that might help some of you, I need to stop and make something extremely clear. What I'm about to teach you is not a remedy for an addiction to pornography. This is not a message primarily about pornography. You are wrapped up in the pornographic world and all that's available with a click or two on your phone. Hear me very clearly. You need help. I mean that. You're going to have to have help to get through it. One place you can get help is through Focus on the Family. It's a pretty trustworthy source. Just go to their website, follow the links to get help. Another place I'm still checking out but has impressed me so far is called Pure Life Ministries. Pure Life Ministries, you can Google that, or I would highly recommend their book, At the Altar of Sexual Immorality. Now, I'm only about halfway through this book, but it's the best book I've read so far on sexual addictions like pornography, at least so far. So, again, if you are caught up in pornography, this message is not probably going to help you very much because you have an addiction that needs an ongoing process and accountability to overcome. What I'm sharing today is better suited to those who have not already spiraled too far down uh, the pit or for those who've already won some battles and you're trying to stay pure. 
Let me give one more disclaimer. The treatment options I'm about to share with you are practical, like physical therapy. But as always, the root of problem of our sin is spiritual. I talk about spiritual growth and how to walk with Jesus quite often. But if you will just hold on to all of that and also be willing to receive a few practical, hopefully helpful ideas for combating lust today, that'd be great. So these practical treatments I'm going to share with you to help with ocular unfaithfulitis are tools that I've adapted from a very challenging book called Every Man's Battle. I'm going to give credit there. I don't know if that book will help everybody. Some people don't like it for various reasons, but all I can tell you is it helped me. So back to the treatment. First, we need to retrain our vision by learning a certain technique called bouncing the eyes. Bouncing the eyes simply means that when you see something that could lead to lust, you immediately look away. It's as reactive as the bounce of a ball. We use the word bounce because it needs to be automatic and immediate, like a reaction. I repeat, this only works if it happens immediately. Now, you don't need to break your neck, you know, or just uh, make a scene, embarrass the other person. Probably a mistake to do this. Oh, my eyes! Don't need to go to that extreme. There's no need to embarrass anybody or make anybody feel bad. Hear me say this. You're trying to break a bad habit. They don't even know you have this habit. So casually but quickly look away if you can tell there might be a tempting situation in front of you. I want to be clear that the general need to just kind of bounce the eyes to look away is not the fault of women. You can't blame your need to look away on on the fact that she looks good, even regardless of how she's dressed. Because regardless of that, you can control you. Personal responsibility. Bible tells us we're not tempted beyond what we can bear. God always makes a way out. One of those ways out is simply to look away. You're personally responsible for what you do in a moment of temptation, regardless of the level of temptation. Also, once the disease is cured, meaning you've made progress not constantly tending toward lust, you will not need to do this as often. Now, let me pause for a moment. Talk to the ladies. Ladies, I know this is shocking. This is shocking for many of you. But frankly, it's about time you understood how men are. If you didn't know. Maybe you thought your guy was the only animal, but it's all of us. I'm sorry. Maybe your guy is you fooled, so don't shoot the messenger. Maybe your man's actually a rare exception. But the fact is that most men have to battle against a tendency to lust, or else it will be our default mode. We can either fight this, or we can give in to it and pretend it's all perfectly okay in spite of what Jesus said. I'm trying to help our men fight. Just remember, Jesus is the one who brought it up, not me. I will add that although it's ultimately a man's responsibility to control his eyes, women sure can help by choosing to dress with some modesty. Call me old-fashioned, but ladies who want to follow Jesus ought to do their best not to cause their Christian brothers to stumble. Save your giftedness for your husband or future husband, because that is who it is for. And yes, I meant that. God gave you your body to give to him, and God gave him his body to give to you. That's straight up in the Bible, as I mentioned earlier. That's marriage. Back to Genesis chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, many other places in the New Testament. Along those lines, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10 tells us that women making a claim to godliness should dress with modesty in public. Where's the line? I don't know. I don't know. I would recommend asking an older, godly Christian woman to help you if you need help with where's the line. I'm preaching to people who would follow Jesus right now. Yes? I'm not talking to people who have decided to just do whatever everybody else is doing. But to those who would honor Christ. I'm preaching to the church assembled. And the idea of modesty is a clear teaching in the Bible. So yes, I'm not, I'm going to mention it. Even though I'm not going to get specific because I'm not a complete moron. But seriously, can you imagine that following Jesus might actually mean something real? Like women dressing differently than the latest cultural norm. Or like men not looking at women lustfully. Can you see how those two things can be related? 
Now, experts tell us that anything done consistently for 21 days becomes a new habit. I can honestly tell you from experience that bouncing the eyes or looking away quickly can become your new habit. For most men, at first, it's going to require extreme discipline. But over time, and it doesn't take that long, if you're consistent, this becomes automatic. Additionally, at some point, you'll begin to cherish purity, and you will fight to keep it. Just as looking for opportunities to lust, you know, scanning the horizons, that's our natural default tendency. With training, bouncing the eyes away from lust can become our new default. It all depends on what you practice the most. And I'm here to tell you that once this becomes automatic, it's such a great relief. It's a relief. So similar, it's similar to exercise um, or any other good habit in that consistent repetition brings the transformation. You've got to stick with it. Second part of our physical therapy regimen for the treatment of ocular unfaithfulitis is called starving the eyes. Starving the eyes. Now, this principle is just amazing. I briefly mentioned it earlier, and it can be summed, like, summed up like this. Even a cheap hamburger looks like a steak dinner to a man who is starving. Now, I'm not saying your wife is a cheap hamburger, okay? But I hope you get the idea. I've always thought my wife is absolutely gorgeous. No amens unless you want to meet in the parking lot after the service. Let me tell you something. When I began to understand lust better in my life, and when I began to win some battles over it, my wife started looking more and more beautiful every day until now it's almost painful. I mean, she honestly takes my breath away. It's magical. I'm serious. It's magical. I am teaching you marriage magic today. Don't brand me a heretic. <laughs> Truthfully, my attraction level at this point freaks her out, I think. I can't stop telling her how beautiful she is. It's really what I think. It's really how I feel. But the scary, honest truth is, if I start giving in more to lust, some of that edge is lost. And think of how unfair that is to my wife. It's unfaithfulness on my part. And it costs her. Let's use this analogy. Say your wife is represented by a delicious and satisfying dinner. Okay, ladies, I'm sorry for this caveman way of thinking that I've got going here. But guys, come with me on this for a minute. And so if your wife is that wonderful hot supper laid out on the table, but by dinner time you've already enjoyed six candy bars, some chili cheese fries, four Cokes, seven tacos, and five double cheeseburgers, then dinner's probably not going to look that great to you. Are you following me? Your eyes. You know, the same, same principle is true. Again, for single guys and gals, by the way, only you just have to wait longer for dinner. <laughs> Bless your hearts. You just keep fighting until God provides and you'll be happier when He does. The point is, what if you eliminated all of the junk food which represents the sexual gratification you usually get through your eyes by looking at others inappropriately? What if all that junk was gone? And so when that steak and baked potato and banana cream pie or whatever you like is set before you, you haven't eaten all day, how good is it going to look? How much will it satisfy? I mean, hello, Song of Solomon, baby. You know, if you think I'm being too steamy, steamy today, you just go somewhere towards the middle of your Bible and start reading Song of Solomon. Uh, just don't do that while you're away on a trip or something. Let's keep on track with what Jesus is saying about marital faithfulness at this point in sermon. Let me give you the third treatment for ocular unfaithfulitis, which is this, taking up your sword. And no, I don't mean to harm yourself or go kill all the pretty women in the world. That would be wrong. Talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible. Let's keep this simple. Bible describes itself as our singular weapon against the enemy. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he quoted Scripture in his defense. There's nothing more powerful than memorized Scripture for fighting off temptation. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I encourage you to memorize at least one Scripture verse to fight against ocular unfaithfulness. I have a whole list of them personally, but one of my favorites is this, Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. 
I wish I didn't have to say that to myself as often as I do. But I use that as my sword. One of the things that I use. Memorize that. Use it. Change the gender if you need to for if you're a female of struggles with this. The Bible is your sword. Stop being a loser. That's what you're being, brother, if you don't fight this. I'm challenging you to be a fighter and win with Jesus instead. Peace comes in victory, not in settling for an ongoing string of seemingly lesser defeats. Peace comes in victory. Now, if ocular unfaithfulitis is allowed to continue, it always leads to an even worse condition, which can be seen in the second part of verse 28, where Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus was specifically talking to men at this point, I think because this is more often our problem, but this truth applies to women as well. And I do think the area of the heart is where women struggle more often than with their eyes. The eyes can lead to a struggle of the heart, but so can memories or emotional connections or romance novels or soap operas or certain role-playing games if you're a gamer or maybe even some Hallmark movies or whatever might make you daydream about someone other than your spouse. Hmm. We'll call this condition cardio-unfaithfulitis. Cardio unfaithfulitis. If you struggle with this disease, your primary symptom might be described as follows. The patient allows romantic feelings toward a specific person other than his or her spouse to continue. Again, if you have the symptoms, you have the disease. Here's the prognosis. Left unchecked, this condition will undoubtedly lead to an extramarital affair, likely resulting in the destruction of his or her marriage, including much harm to other family and friends. That's worse than cancer, if you ask me. Now, really, there's only one treatment for this horrible disease, and here it is. Here's the treatment. Run away. That's the treatment. As in, get the heck out of there. Remove yourself from the situation. If you have cardio-unfaithfulitis, you need to completely sever all contact with the other person involved. That means no more text, phone calls, emails, conversations at the water fountain or in the driveway, and no more being in their presence, period. Run away and stay away. Paul was explicit here. He said, run away from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. The idea here is to run away before you sin against your own body, which belongs to your spouse and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The consequences are extreme when you sin against yourself, your spouse, and the Holy Spirit all at once. Run. Flee. From the situation as the old King James puts it. Run away while there's still only a condition of the heart. Otherwise you'll be like a moth to a flame and you won't be the only one burnt to a crisp. The original Greek word from which the Bible translators get the words run away here is fugo. To run from danger. You can't make this stuff up. Just remember like this. You can't have an affair if fugo. Fugo. Now, I'm sure somebody else has thought of that too, but just so you know, I made that up all by myself. You can't be unfaithful if you go. The Greek lexicon defines fugo with phrases like to seek safety by flight, to flee from something abhorrent, to escape safely out of danger, or even to vanish. I think you get the idea. I'm telling you to get the heck out of there, and what I mean by heck is hell. Or maybe it's better said, get out of there or there will be hell to pay. Which is precisely what Jesus said in our text. You may need to quit your job. That's how serious this is. One way or another, you need to not be around that person who gives you the tingles, at least until any feelings completely subside and time has passed. Seriously, run as if hell were chasing you. After all, that's exactly what is happening. Now let's talk about, as I'm wrapping up, the good results of curing these diseases 
from the standpoint of men and women, generally speaking, it's pretty well proven that general men more often struggle with ocular unfaithfulness, women more with uh, cardial unfaithfulness. Obviously, the two overlap. But let me show you how this can work together for your benefit and the benefit of your marriage. Men, when you protect your eyes, your wife can be the knockout woman of your dreams again, and that'll impact your overall marriage in various positive ways. Because you'll want her so bad... And you'll be motivated to do all the other things that she needs you to do. Romantically speaking and otherwise. This will help your wife not to succumb to cardio unfaithfulness. Why? Because you'll be motivated to become the man of her dreams again. So she won't need to find him somewhere else. Romantic, meeting emotional needs, all of it. Similarly, ladies, if you'll protect your hearts from romanticizing about other men, you'll have a tendency to meet this need in your heart by, believe it or not, romanticizing about your man again. And that might lead to you doing the kinds of things you would have done when you didn't already have him locked in. You know? By the way, when he only has eyes for you, you're going to uh, be wanted and needed at a level that's off the charts. If somebody in this church, if in a marriage in this church, one of our men decides to get real, never has before, uh, probably I need his wife to sit down with my wife and have a discussion about how that's going to look and what that's going to mean. It's going to shock you. You're going to be needed until um, things balance out, maybe more than you can handle. But believe me, it will work out in your favor, possibly the tune of jewelry and chocolate, and maybe even to the point of him cleaning up the kitchen now and again, or even the ultimate, watching the kids so you can have some time alone. Bottom line, God's way works. Following Jesus is a lifestyle, y'all. It's a way of life, not just something to play around with by showing up at church once in a while. To be a disciple of Jesus, you have to take on his worldview. And does anybody really think God would not have a radical worldview compared to the rest of the world? Listen, salvation is a simple faith decision to trust in Jesus. But the result is the radical transformation of your life. Jesus himself said, you must be born again. It's a far-reaching conversion. The results in a complete shifting of your priorities and a renewal of your mind until you don't think about anything the same way you did before. We need to stop playing games. We are the remnant. We are the people of God. Men, I realize that it's Father's Day. Maybe you were hoping for a cookie instead of your vegetables today. But God had other plans. See, I didn't intend to preach this message on Father's Day. Remember, on the spot last week, I decided not to preach this message because of so many guests and children in the room that day due to the baptism. So I pushed this message off to today, and I didn't realize at the time what that meant, but God knew. So how about it? What if Father's Day 2021 marks a new beginning for the men of Go Church? Dad, you're either leading your kids and your wife to Christ, or you're leading them away from Him. Now, if you don't really know Jesus, let's talk about how that can change, because he is real, and you need him. You know, let's have coffee. Let's talk so I can help you understand what, just how you need to receive him. If you understand already what you need to do, then just do it. Just surrender to Jesus today. Just trust in his cross and his resurrection to be enough to save you and let him come into your life. But if you need to talk about that some more, let's get together. But to those of you who have already put your trust in Jesus for salvation, listen to me now. We are different in Jesus. We're not of this world. We're like foreigners living among people who look at us funny. We're not the same as the other men. Do you hear me? We're not like them. We belong to Jesus. We've been crucified with Christ. In the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Come out from among them. Be transformed by the power of the gospel. Join him. Join him 
as we move from faith to even more faith. We are growing. We are changing. We are becoming like Jesus Christ. Already citizens of heaven, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, which means that we will spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus. Men of God, stand up. Be strong. Stop committing adultery with your eyes and in your heart. Father's Day 2021, I'm calling you out. I'm asking, when will you start living the new life that is yours in Christ? Who are we? Say this to all of us. Who are we? Who are we? We are the disciples of Jesus, and we are the remnant of the people of God. Can I have an amen? Amen. Let's pray, because we're going to need His help. Lord Jesus, this is a challenging message. It's as challenging for me as anybody else here. Thank you for the reminders of your word, for the word of Christ today. We need your help. Throughout some practical tools today, but ultimately this is a spiritual issue. We need you to reign in us anew. Many of us probably need to repent right now. To confess our sin to you in our heart and turn away from it. Make a commitment to walk the other way. Some folks in here need to get help with an addiction. It will destroy you. God, help us all to stop playing games, to truly follow Jesus in our lives. And lastly, God, I do just want to thank you for our dads. It's not easy. Thank you for dads that fight the battles. None of us are perfect. None of us. But thank you for our dads, especially the ones that would lead out and try to follow Christ and try to lead us to follow Christ as they follow him. And for anybody in this room that hasn't been doing that, today can be the day. It's never too late. Help us, Lord. We need your help. I need your help. Help me as I try to lead the men of this church and be an example. And we know your word says I'll be held to another level of accountability. I know an enemy who knows that too. So I'll pray selfishly, God, help me. Help all of us to follow Jesus for real. It's his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.